shut your mouth. The Cooper and Anthony Show. He's going to see us and go, oh, God, not them again. <laughs> not those two. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what he's going to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hi. Hello again. He's going to say, are you? I hate these guys. Long time no see. <laughs> <laughs> is it possible you've gotten more handsome during the pandemic? Well, you know, um, those TikTok filters are... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me do a quick intro. Uh, one of our favorite guests has returned, which means we didn't scare him off too badly last time. <laughs> In some circles, he's known as Amy's husband and Tanner's father, but here... <laughs> we call him the better half of the legendary band Hall and Oates. Please welcome John Oates back to the show. Hello. Hello. Hello, Cooper and Anthony. How are you all? Now, you, you brought up TikTok. Do you go on TikTok and do you get pissed when people use your songs for their benefit? Are you kidding? It's the best thing ever happened. Um, I think it's hysterical. I know I personally do not go on, but I've got a team of brilliant young TikTokers who just they they're they're my uh, uh, what is it a- avatars mm-hmm. they're my like <laughs> behind the scenes avatars on TikTok they just tell me to do silly things and I just do them and then they put them up my favorite thing is um, I have a niece and I I played her I play her your music I'm, I'm trying to educate her musically and I played her Sarah Smile I was like isn't this a beautiful song she was like I don't like it and then her friend used it for a TikTok and she's like oh my god do you know the song Sarah Smile it's amazing <laughs> that goes to show you this goes to show you the power right I was like that's the song I played you now it's on TikTok suddenly it has value your aunt you know <laughs> fuck her. <laughs> So let's tell the folks what you're up to. This is kind of exciting. So um, you're going on tour with guitarist Guthrie Trap. It'll be an intimate concert series where you guys are going to play music and tell stories. It all starts March 16th. And now, is this the first time you're leaving the house since COVID? No, not quite. <laughs> <laughs> well, how could you tell? I still got. I'm still in my pajamas. So I guess, that, I guess that's a sign, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I'm, you know, I'm in my, I'm, let's put it this way. I'm in my pajama tops. I still haven't put my bottoms on. TMI, John. No, it's, it's, uh, this is a, a show that um, I've done things like this before, but Guthrie Trap and I have been friends for about 15 years. He's, he's an incredible, among the amazing uh, you know, brilliant guitarists in Nashville. He's certainly at the top. Um, and he's just, uh, he's a great guy as well. Great hang. And what we, uh, what we did was after Daryl and I did a few shows at the end of 21 and, you know, it was the big tour, you know, the big venues with the video screens and the trucks and buses and lots of people. And I came back and I just wanted to break it down. And uh, he and I got together and we sat in the living room when we played two acoustic guitars and we looked at each other and said, wouldn't it be cool if we could just do this? And we both looked at each other and said, well, why not? And right. So let's bring the living room to the stage. And that was kind of how it started. Uh, and then, you know, it. what happened was it evolved into, um, I, I realized it gave me the, the opportunity to go back to my earliest musical roots when I was a kid hmm. and, and get and like revisit and re relearn in some cases, the, a lot of the music that made me who I am before I met Daryl, you know, cause I started playing it about seven or eight 
I met Daryl when I was 18 or 19, so I've been playing for 10 years. So I had a whole musical life before Hall & Oates. And a lot of people, of course, don't realize that, you know. Uh, and so I get to tell stories. I get to talk about my influences and how they kind of hmm. string together. And it's and it becomes like this um, little musical chronological journey, I guess you'd call it. Mm. I love that whole idea. I like the intimacy of it. And, uh, you know, people love stories now. They feel I feel like they connect more to you. Well, you tell stories in your music, but then when you actually tell a story, I feel like that's what really makes the connection happen. No, you're 100% right. And I think a, a lot of people, you know, don't realize that, you know, the circumstances or the inspiration that's actually the real the real story behind the writing of some of these songs. And a lot of times it's it's kind of crazy and and many times has very little to do with what, what people might think. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's fun to kind of give them so, so a backstory and, you know, it kind of puts the song into context. So no roadies, no guitar text, nothing like that. Just you. No, no, nothing. No amps, no roadies, no. It's me, Guthrie, and our sound man. And wow. we have. We and possibly up. pajama pants. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, I'm, I'm really, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to class it up for this and actually put on real pants. Wow. I want to make sure. I, I, I always respect my audience. I mean, you have to. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, seriously, we have, uh, we have three microphones. One for each guitar and one for my vocal hmm. and our two guitars. And that's the show. Wow. In, in my past life, I worked for a record company that you were with, with Atlantic Records for many years. And uh, I would put artists at radio station venues or whatever. And I had Edwin McCain and he would play with just him and a guitar and the radio station would complain. I'm like, no, that's how you want to get these artists. That's a special show is when you get somebody like that. So I can see with you doing this and telling stories, how that can be special. Well, and plus it's in these really old theaters that we're playing. We're playing these really old theaters. Some of them go back to the twenties, you know, the vaudeville days. And those theaters were made for music. They were made to, to, you know, they're acoustically really great. Uh, People are comfortable. We can see them. They can see us. We literally talk to each other. We talk to the audience and it really is a completely different type of, of experience. Right. I think that's really special. And I remember, um, I feel like, I hate to say this, but I feel like as I'm getting older, I prefer that. Um, but I remember like years and years ago, I'd seen Pete Townsend do the same thing where he just had like a really small, something he had never done before. You know, I'd seen The Who and it was fine, but I, I'll never forget that show where it was just Pete Townsend and a guitar on a small stage. And it's still, I still think about it. Like I've seen, you know, I'm in radio forever. I've seen everybody, Anthony and I have hosted everybody, but there's something about that show and that intimacy that I just think is like beyond special. And I think you're going to find that you're going to have some surprises sitting there, seeing the faces and seeing the reaction of the audience. That's mm. going to have a special effect on you as well. Just, you know, you're there to, to be with them, but they're also there to be with you. And I think, you know, definitely, I, I know you've had that before when you look out into a, to an audience. I feel like this audience, it's going to be also intimate for you. And you're, you're I bet you're going to be surprised. Oh, I, I listen, it's, you, you, the, the, you, it's called breaking down what they call the fourth wall. There mm-hmm. is no, there's really that. I mean, you, you, when you're six feet from people sitting in front of you and there's no, you know, as you said, you know, the big amps and the staging and the lights and the, you know, it, it makes a difference. It really does. And people, people have just called out songs. Hey, you know, can you play this? You know, <laughs> it, becomes, it seriously becomes like a living room and I love it. 
Right. No, that's really okay. So let, let's let's start your storytelling then. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, um, and you may want to use these stories, by the way. So it, it's no secret that you and Hunter S. Thompson were super tight, and I was just thinking about that. That we never really discussed that with you before. Uh, you must have had some wild times with him. Like, what would you say is your craziest Hunter Thompson experience? I've got a few. Um, you know, Hunter and I got along really well. Um, mostly because of the fact that he slept all day and worked all night and I slept all night and worked all day. So <laughs> we, never got in, we never got in each other's way, which is, mm-hmm. but I'll tell you a funny story about how we met or how we were introduced to him. Um, my wife, well, she was my girlfriend at the time. Um, she had found this piece of property in, uh, in Woody Creek, Colorado, which is outside of Aspen. And uh, I wanted it to get a house in town and she said, no, we got to have chickens. We got to have animals. We need to have a little farm. So she said, come out to Woody Creek and meet me and the, and the real estate agent. And we we're going to look at this little piece, little farm. So there was, wasn't much there. There was a little cabin and it was a little horse barn and the house had burned down years ago. So it was basically raw. Um, and so we're standing on, you know, on the property and we're looking around with the real estate agent and all of a sudden we hear boom, boom. And then all of a sudden, these we hear on the met on the metal roof of the little barn. We hear it was the shotgun pellets, and we're literally standing right next to the barn. and And I said, "Is this going to be a problem?" And I said, "What's that?" And he goes, "Oh, that's your neighbor, Hunter." (laughs) I think I think Hunter was trying to like scare us off or something. Oh God! I don't think he wanted anyone to buy the property. That's how he shows love. <laughs> so, so right there in the little in the little cabin at, that was still on the property, we looked inside, and there is his red land shark that that convertible that he had oh, here in Loathing. Yeah, um, it's in it's in the in the little cabin, but he doesn't own the property. It, but his car is parked there. <laughs> okay, and so I said, to the, I said to the real estate agent, you know, well. What's the deal with the car? He said, oh, that's his too. He just put it in here I mean, <laughs> because the property was vacant, basically. Mm-hmm. And he said, look, this is how Woody, this is Woody Creek. It's a whole different world out here. And so we said, okay. So we decided we were going to take the little cabin and turn it into an apartment, mm-hmm. one bedroom apartment where we could live while we built the house. Mm-hmm. Well, we couldn't do that with a car inside there. Right. So, <laughs> so luckily, there were keys in the car. And so I jump started. I put a, a, a I jumped it, started the, the engine. It ran. I pulled it out and I drove it up onto his lawn. I parked it directly in front of his kitchen <laughs> door and I just left it there and I walked away. And I had never, we had never met. And 20 years went by and he never said a word to me. You're kidding. He must must have just thought the car just appeared. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So so that's how that's how the relationship started. But he was great. I mean, we you know, I think what was really cool about him was that, you know, many things, but he he liked being Hunter Thompson. He liked being that guy in the slouch hat with the cigarette holder and the, the, you know, the milk glass full of booze and the motorcycle. And, um, and, you know, and when he wasn't doing that, when he was at home, uh, we kind of watching, he loved to watch sports. We'd watch sports together. Um, he was cool. He was just a, a Southern gentleman. 
And I remember one time it was kind of funny when Johnny Depp was doing those movies. Mm-hmm. Johnny Depp was staying at the house. Mm-hmm. And Johnny Depp would dress exactly like him. Oh, God. So you had two of them. <laughs> he would dress exactly like him. And he would sit on the front steps of the house facing the road. And I would go by and I'd see him. And I knew it was Hunter because it was daytime. And mm-hmm. so I, I figured, well, it couldn't possibly be him. And it turned out it was it was Johnny Depp. And then we, of course, you know, ended up going to that amazing funeral where they shot his ashes out of a cannon and all that. Mm-hmm. And I played that night with Lyle Lovett and a bunch of other people. So it was um, it was an experience um, living across the way from him. So you call that experience of the ashes being shot? Because we just found out, I guess it was just revealed that Johnny Depp spent $5 million to have that done. I don't know how much it was, but it was a lot. And it was the most extravagant. I mean, I could tell you the whole story of the funeral, which is a whole week ago all night on this. You want to hear this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. We're not. We, you're you're all we got tonight. Just us and you. The pressure's on, huh? Okay. So when after he passed away, um, Johnny Depp uh, was going to do the funeral. It was invitation only. There were people camped out on the hillsides who couldn't go to the funeral with telescopes and things like that. It was just insane. No one was allowed to drive to the, the property. You had to, they had a series of buses that were taking people from downtown Aspen up there. Because we lived literally across the way, we just walked, obviously. But so when you got there, they had built this, they had a whole Hollywood crew come in and stage the funeral, basically. Um, so when you got there, you you walked into this long rectangular tent and it was all dark. It was all swabbed in, in black, had a lot of candles. It was very somber. It was very kind of respectful Had pictures of him and his family and things like that. And they went in, there was a very brief ceremony, uh, very, you know, a few people talked a few, few is, you know, his son and a few close, close to the sheriff and various people. And then they they rolled up the back of the tent, which was like a curtain, mm-hmm. and ushered everyone out onto the lawn. And there was this giant aluminum, you know, uh, cannon, which is as high. It was a little as same height as the as the Statue of Liberty. Wow! Wow! Yeah. It's enormous. And, and a full stage with sound and lights and a whole thing, right? And so, but what we didn't know was after they we walked out to the grass and where all the stuff was, they closed the curtain behind us and they transformed the the place where we were in into a complete bordello bar. Oh, how cool. So after, so then they had this, I mean, I, it's a long story. But he, they, they showed a movie of him designing his funeral back in the 70s with, um, with um, the whoever the artist was, a good friend of his who did all, anyway. And it showed Hunter literally drawing the cannon and saying, when I yell, I'm going to shit shot of this fucking cannon. You know, he talked like that. And, yeah. <laughs> and there was the, th- and Johnny Depp realized that he made it happen. And so then they rolled up the curtain and the music started, they blasted the music and it was a full bar and everything you can think of. And everybody's drinking and going nuts. And then the music started playing. And then, of course, then they shot his ashes out of the cannon. It was it was surreal. It was I'll tell you, I think um, I think the pharaohs would have been. Um, right. 
<laughs> oh, that's an amazing story. And like, how do you top that? You know, everybody thinks about like what they want their funeral to be like. And it's like, you know what? I'm out. Yeah, he, he drew, he, he designed his own funeral and Johnny Depp made it happen. Wow. You were on the road where you were part of hollow notes for most of your life. And even Cooper and I have fought big time in the past, uh, over the past couple of years. What was the biggest fight you guys had being together all that time? You had to have just a horrible fight at one point. No. We never did. We've had disagreements, uh, mostly like creative disagreements. And a lot of times we would just, we just turn and walk away. Hmm. We we never really had a knockdown. You know, you hear all these stories about the police, you know, having fights Mm -hmm. in the studio and, you know, fist fights and things. We never did that. Uh, Maybe we should have. That might have been. (laughs) Get it all out. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> um, but no, we never really did. Um, and we still do, you know, we still, we, we have disagreements and then we just, we go, we go our separate ways and kind of let, let off steam, do our creative crop projects. And then we come back together and, and it's as if time stopped. But when you have the disagreements, how do you work them out? You can't just come back to, a, I mean, in any relationship, mm-hmm. you can't come back and, and pretend that the issues between you are just poof dissolved. Uh, yeah, you're right. The, some of those issues are never, never really resolved. But um, I think what we do is we just say, we, we came to the realization a while ago that the future, our future was in our history. The future of Hall Notes was in the, 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 the legacy of music that we've made. I don't think we need to make any more music or different music. People come to hear a certain thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I don't want to trivialize it, but you know, it's like that old cliche joke. Uh, what's the last thing you want to hear at a classic rock concert? Mm. Here's a song from our new album. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, that, so that being said, um, if you want to hear a bunch of new songs, come see my show. You'll hear lots of them. Uh, <laughs> but isn't that a disservice to? us as the fans since you guys wrote such massive hits all these years could have we have a legacy of 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 great music and you know to be honest with you we could do a show that sounded like a new show we could play some of our deep tracks and Mm -hmm. some of them are i think really good musically a lot of them they're adventurous they're musical they're cool and different uh, it wouldn't be a whole note show. It'd be this other type of show. And I, you know, I would love to do something like that. And the hardcore fans I'm sure would like it, but the jet, you know, the general public, they want to hear the hits. And I mean, look at, look at, you know, all the classic uh, acts, uh, look at the Eagles. I mean, I, I, yeah. And I don't mean to say anything weird by saying this, but Glenn Fry passes the way and the Eagles just keep on going. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And it's it's the songs. It's those songs. Those songs will transcend time, space, and hmm. and they'll trans they'll transcend the lives of the people who made them. Just like um, classical music. I mean, you know, people love Mozart and Beethoven. They haven't been around for a while, but right. the songs haven't gone away. Right. Yeah, I find it really interesting. You know, like I was discussing with you earlier about my niece discovering Sarah Smile and other song, other Hollow Note songs. 
what's it like to get discovered all over again by a new generation? I mean, is it is it like, hi, no, sorry, we've been here. Or are you happy to have them? It must be weird to be someone's discovery over and over and over again. Oh, no, I think it's amazing. I, I think it's the ultimate compliment. It's the ultimate compliment that something that you you did in in a in a in a place and time you know because a song is always somehow reflective of a place and time you know our 80s songs would not have happened had we not been you know in the epicenter of the 80s in new york city mm-hmm. represent, to me when i hear our 80s music it represents that time in new york city in the 80s however the fact that a younger generation who has no conception of what that mean meant unless they watched the wolf of wall street and then, right. they, probably, then they probably thought it was an exaggeration but it actually wasn't <laughs> very, very um uh they um it still resonates with them somehow or another so you know that's the ultimate compliment as a songwriter that you can write something that is not even though in you know in your inspiration and and what you think of it uh it's not locked into into place and time. It it transcends place and time, and similar to what I was just saying about you know the the, the songs of the of the classic groups. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I just you know I just think about like this new generation. You know I I think I might have mentioned this to you last time, but I, I think about this all the time about how. I don't know what the next thing is in music. You know, we ask this question all the time whenever we interview, like, I mean, literally anybody, I'm not going to name drop, but like, you know, pop star, current pop stars, um, even even people like yourselves, you know, like yourself. You know, when you think about, so there's rock, there's disco, there's hip hop, there's all these genres. There seems to be no new genres anymore. You know, it seems like the genre thing has stopped and just more music is being made. So what do you make of that? I feel like, there should be a new movement at some point, but so far, I don't think it's happened. Well, I kind of agree with you. I don't think I don't think any one movement has has kind of, you know, had so much power that it could generate people flocking to it. I, I don't. I agree with you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's become a really, you know, it's kind of. I guess in a way it's kind of reflective of our world and our society. It's a, just a mix mishmash of, of, you know, previous errors, previous styles. Um, and it's just, but, but they, the younger writers always seem to come up with a twist on it, their own unique spin on it. Even though you'll hear elements of the eighties and seventies and sixties, fifties or whatever it might be. But but somehow there's a sensibility that's not the same, mm-hmm. which I guess that's what the movement is. This ability to have, you know, they have the early rockers had nothing to base it on. They were inventing something mm-hmm. from scratch. And even through the 60s, 70s and 80s, we were kind of inventing something. Now it's kind of been invented. And now the newer generation saying, oh, look at all this amazing wealth of stuff that we can pull from right and then they're making it their own somehow or another do you still listen to, to current music and does it still give you the chills that music from the 80s 90s did back then i think there's a lot of great pop music being made a really really good pop music being made um but i think what's happened for me and what i hear is that the music the pop music of today 
is really integrated and has become one, one in the same with the production. The production is as much as as important as the actual composition, if if, if not more. You look at look at pop songs. They're written by six, seven, eight, sometimes ten people. Right. Mm-hmm. Are writing a pop song. Well, so so obviously it's not a singular point of view. There ain't no Joni Mitchell in there. Trust me. Right. So you know you take you know what you have is this amalgamation of creative creatives. And one person is a top line who comes up with a melody. Another person comes up with a beat on a machine or, or perhaps an instrument. Another person might be a producer or a, an arranger. Another person might be, you know, I don't know, gets sandwiches in Starbucks. (laughs) (laughs) And they somehow get their name on the record, you know? Yeah. 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 (laughs) But um, you know, that's, that's, that's how create creative music is being made today. And it's, it's far be for me to say what it's not right or wrong. It just is. Mm-hmm. But in a hundred years from now, you know, we'll still be jamming to and loving every Hall and Oates song. And I mean, without bashing anybody, the pop stars currently, they'll be forgotten. You know, I feel like it's just, it's just a money-making thing now. It's like, what can we do? That'll be really hot right now. We can, it's a cash grab. And then, you know, who cares what happens to the music after that? I mean, Anthony and I were in top 40 music for a long time. And it's amazing how quickly that stuff churns. We just heard a song that we just did a bit last week where we just heard a song that we'd completely forgotten about that was like a number one hit in 2018, you know? And I just, I feel like it's, it wasn't that long ago and we forgot about it already. Yeah, um, it's hard to say what what uh, what kind of uh, legacy the, the the music of the modern you know modern era of the the millennial generation will uh, some of it will sustain and some of it probably won't but most of it probably won't but you know who's to say it's a different culture it's a disposable rapid you know uh, digital virtual culture that just seems to keep you know devouring itself. And right. It's just, it's just the way it is. Like, yeah, but in yeah. 2022, you can still go on TikTok and watch a cat dance to <laughs> <laughs> "You Make My Dreams Come True." <laughs> There's always a cat dancing to that song. <laughs> maybe, maybe that. Maybe, maybe that's what will survive. <laughs> is the, is the cat dancing to "You Make My Dreams." <laughs> Well, John, we always love having you. You're such, we just, we adore you. We adore your stories. Everything about you is just like, you're just such a special human being. And we're really grateful that you spend time with us on our stupid show. Um, your tour kicks off March 16th in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania at the Colonial Theater. Did you Are you originally from Pennsylvania or New York? I was born in New York City, but I grew up in Pennsylvania. I moved, uh, we moved to Pennsylvania when I was four. Um, so yeah, I essentially grew up in Pennsylvania and, you know, I, I have to say that, um, the only re- I booked the Phoenixville theater for a specific reason. My father lives about six miles away. He's 98. Oh, and wow. God bless him. He's coming to the show. And, um, I don't think I doubt whether he'll go to too many more shows. So, um, my sister's bringing him I mean, my sister's a saint because it's, it's not going to be easy. Um, but anyway, he's coming. So that's the only reason I booked that show. So, um, I'm really glad other people are coming, but if there was no one in the audience except him, I'd, I'd be okay. Is he proud of you? 
I joked, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. You know, who was really proud of me and my father's proud of me. Yes. But who's really proud of me was my mom. My mom was a stage mom. Um, she's the one that pushed me on stage and made me wear all these like silly clothes when I was a little <laughs> kid. Um, God, she made me wear a red blazer and white bucks. And I swear <laughs> to this day, I can never wear red. Um, <laughs> You're triggered. <laughs> I know, but, but she she passed away a while back. And uh, but she would have been really, you know, she would be right up there, you know. Uh, but but my dad is uh, it's just great to see him. He's he's still got great spirit. He's 98 and almost 99. So uh, it's it should be an interesting night. Oh, that's cool. I love that. Um, a complete list of tour dates can be found on John's website, johnoats.com. And on March 13th, uh, you guys, you and uh, Mr. Trapp will stage a live stream, right? That will feature a, like a comfortable as a living room setting, but it'll be a live stream for people that either no longer feel comfortable going out or mm. can't get to the show. Yeah, it's actually a pre-recorded show that we did in Nashville earlier b- before the tour started. And it's streaming on mandolin.com at uh, 8 p.m. Eastern, March 13th. Yeah, this oh. Sunday. Yep. Yeah, that's this Sunday. Um, John, thank you so much. Don't forget to go to johnoats.com, buy your tickets. It's going to sell out if it, if it hasn't already because it's a small, intimate show. And um, yeah, I'm going to come see you in New York City. Oh, you're coming to Sony Hall. Oh, yes, of Please course. Do Please. Please do. Please do. Please do. <laughs> of course. Right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring my mom. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say you're going to bring a cat dancing. To, you make my dance. <laughs> She'll bring her cat, too. I'll bring, a, I'll, bring, I'll bring her cat as well. Yes, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> That's perfect. Thank, Thank you, you so much, John. Thank you. Well, Have you a great night. Awesome. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. So are you. Thank you.